Hey Phil. Hey Laurie. It is so hot. It's really, really hot. And can I repeat my hey Phil with how I'm actually feeling? Yes? Hey Phil. Oh no. I'm not very well today, but it, interestingly I spent the morning helping some people direct a video and one of the things I was doing was trying to get a performance basically out of one of the people who was going to be on the camera. Yeah. It's just an interview, that kind of thing. And I was saying, you just need to switch on your persona. You'd be like, hey, how's it going? And I suddenly realised this has happened to me. Has this happened to you? What, switching on your persona? Since we've been doing the show. Yeah, I think there's certainly a bit when you're like, yep, let's go, boom, we're on show. Yeah. Lights, camera, action. Exactly. <laughs> so I'd actually be like this. Click like that, that switch, Lloyd. Ready, three, two, one. Boop. Hey, Phil, you don't need to tell me. Come on. <laughs> I'm a pro. Energy, energy, energy. <laughs> Listeners, welcome to season two, episode 29 of Super Belly Bros in Movie Land. Hope you're enjoying the sunshine wherever you are. If it is indeed sunny, we've got some good movies for you this week. Yep, I've gone to see Tom Cruise in The Mummy, the first, well, maybe the first film in the Universal Dark Universe franchise. I'm looking forward to talking about that film. <laughs> yeah, yes. we're going to talk about that, yep. Also, I've, I'm going to do a bit of catching up on movies that you've reviewed, but now I've seen. I'm going to give my thoughts on Baywatch and also Wonder Woman. I've seen both. Nice work, Phil. What have you seen? I've been to see Churchill, which had a, a long review embargo. It was actually embargoed until its day of release, which fortunately is Friday. So we're able to talk about it now. I'm also going to talk about a really bizarre French small film called Malut. Uh, and I'm going to combine two of those together. So don't worry, this isn't going to be a massive review show. Nope, it's just going to be lots of films catching up, clearing base a bit. Yes, exactly. Uh, what else are we doing, Phil? We've got what we've been watching as per usual. We've Just got- one film each, not a double whammy. That was a lot to get through, wasn't <laughs> that it? That was a lot. <laughs> we tried. We thought we needed to pad out that episode. We didn't need no, to at all. No, not in the slightest, no. <laughs> also, we've got emails and tweets at the back end of the show. So do email in if you've got thoughts on what we've been saying. If you've got thoughts on previous episodes, let us know too. We love hearing from you. You do. at gmail.com or you can tweet us at superbaileybrose. And I've got a mini segment and it really will be mini that I'm going to throw in there, which is to do with symbolism. And as uh, over the top <laughs> as that sounds, hopefully it'll be interesting for everyone. It's that Laurie's University Corner. Look, no, it isn't. Trust me, it's not. You're going to like it when we get there, Phil. Great. I think you are. <laughs> I hope you are. Uh, listen, check out patreon.com slash superbaileybrose if you're interested in supporting the show. And keep checking out the Super Belly Bros channel on YouTube. Uh, after making my big grandstand about how I'd succeeded in uploading 10 videos in one day, Phil, and a bit, you know, a bit of in your face to you mm, <laughs> about yeah. that, I've since done, I've been able to do nothing else because I've been too busy. <laughs> so there's, only, there's still only something like 10 videos up there from episodes a couple of weeks back. But the last three weeks of reviews are going to go up there. So keep checking into YouTube. I'm also going to try and animate some little you and me avatars for some of our more jokey segments, Phil, which I think might be good. That could be really good. I hope so. So if you're a bonus fan, and if you don't know what bonuses are, you know, wait till the end of the episode, uh, then then keep your eyes peeled on that YouTube channel. And that really is everything I've got to say. Anything else? No, I just said that's everything. Yeah. You sure? Yes. <laughs> Anything else? Why? Is there something I need I don't to say? Know. I don't know. I'm just checking. Because <laughs> every time normally we get to this point in the show, it's like, oh, and also blah, 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 blah. That's all. I'm out. <laughs> Okay, I'm out too. Let's go. Do you know, Phil, I was listening to some other people talk about The Mummy and they were uh, generally sort of rambling about the concept of mummies full stop, Tutankhamun and all that sort of thing, the one you learn about in primary school, right? Mm. And it does occur to me, as it occurred to them, so this isn't an original comment particularly, it is strange that the mu- the whole mummy thing is a sort of ritual for death and burial and mourning 
that has become some kind of fun Halloweeny fantasy thing. I mean, you can say like zombies and things are there, but they're not exactly a culture's approach to the dead. Is are it? you talking and, about the fact and that vampires? Western also. audience are basically taking something which is historically significant and quite serious <laughs> and made it into like light entertainment and horror. A little bit. I mean, to the point where you and I have been on sort of fun weekends away, where you played a toilet paper mummy game. Hey, let's all wrap each other up to pretend to be mummies. Who can be the best dead, you know, person? It's I just it's interesting, isn't it? It is a weird one, and it's a weird starting point in some ways for Universal to be doing. Uh, a dark universe why start with the mummy why is that the the franchise or the the idea that would be best to launch this new dark universe well that's an interesting first question because my question in the first place behind that one would be why even bother creating yet another universe that no one cares about because that's where all the money is man you can see why they want to do it universal is known for its monster movies back in the day it had loads of those things the the swamp thing the uh, bride of frankenstein frankenstein all that sort of stuff dracula is known for its horror kind of classic horror characters and they're saying let's combine it let's make a super franchise let's make all that avengers money for ourselves i just think like this is the thing that makes me really depressed <laughs> don't worry i'm not going to get too far into this about the state of the world full stop but particularly the studio thing because they think there's some exact being paid a ridiculous salary and what they do is they turn up to a meeting and say hey disney and marvel have made loads of money by linking together other films can we do that hey that that worked for them so it will probably work for us let's see what we can do so i've already seen king kong which is the second in the big monster franchise from whatever studio that was uh, and we've got dc doing their big expanded universe and now we're talking the famous monsters expanded universe does anyone else think this is just dumb so here's the thing which I want to say to you, man, is I agree with you. I think it's all really quite frustrating from a business side of point of view. It's like, where's the creativity? Where's the ingenuity? Where's the original really people idea? people are paid to make those kind of decisions. But then you've got to say Marvel's done pretty well, the fact that they've managed to do it. Here's the thing that they succeeded with, Phil. There are comic books that are still being written to this day featuring all of these characters and they have a massive fan base, whereas it's not really the case. You walk down the road and find someone who's so into the Invisible Man that their like, room is covered in posters. Am I wrong? Or no, King Kong? <laughs> you're not wrong, man. All right, okay, that's that get... out of the way. Should we leave that part of the discussion? Yes. But there you go. There's <laughs> okay. a little bit of movie news sort of what's going on with the current climate. But it's all relevant for The Mummy. This is 2017's uh, kind of reboot of the Brendan Fraser franchise. And it Brendan, start... Brendan Fraser. Fra- I wish it was Brendan Fraser. I think we've made this joke before. <laughs> <laughs> Fraser and The Mummy. Fraser. Fraser. Yes. Right. It's the reboot of that franchise, and this time it's got Tom Cruise at the helm, and it's got Sophia Butella, who you probably haven't heard of, but you might recognise. She was Jayla in Star Trek Beyond. Oh, right, yeah. Who She was really good in that, I thought. She was great. So she is playing Princess Arminet, the newest incarnation, the first female mummy. Mmm. Should we get a little bit of backstory on Princess Arminet? Yes. Well, we got it in our clip. Here oh, we go. nicely done, Phil. Here's Russell Crowe, of all people, giving a nice, <laughs> very kind of on the nose rundown of who she is and what she's up to. And it's worth me saying, listeners, I've seen this clip and you're not going to witness through the ears all the ravens, I think they are, suspended from the ceiling, flapping about, and a CGI monster that looks like the aliens out of signs appearing in the background towards the end. Off we go. Armanet understood power was not given. It had to be taken. She made a choice to embrace evil. Set the God of Death. They made a pact. A 
express itself. That was what Princess Armanet did, and then she got encased in sort of mercury and things mercury? in a tomb. Yeah, that protects them, the evil. She basically makes a deal with the the evil people in Egypt's sort of mythology, and uh, becomes a sort of weird priestess, mummy, witch person who is mummified alive. Then we fast forward to the present day, and we've got Tom Cruise and Nick from New Girl, who are oh really sort of treasure hunters, but they also work for the military. They're kind of go-ahead scouts and they're in Iraq and they go through basically using the fact that they're the first people there to pick up antiques and things. For the military or for themselves? For themselves. So they're using the military as a kind of shroud for why they could go to these places ahead of other people and basically pilfer them. So they're kind of thieves, but they're working for the military. Get it? Yeah, I do, actually. I think that's not bad. You do think... Well, well just the way you described it, I think that's a weird way to get away with it, unless their characters are handled really badly. Well, they are handled really badly. <laughs> okay. But anyway, in their process of doing this, they then get into some trouble and they call in an airstrike on this little village which they are pilfering. And this airstrike happens to reveal a huge tomb where none other than Princess Armanet is Ooh. residing. Uh-oh. Tom Cruise is then joined by Jenny, who is another sort of archaeologist slash treasure person who has some interest in this area trying to find pieces of interest and take Played them back by home. Annabelle Wallace, that is. Yeah, kind of a new person. I think she's in Peaky Blinders. Yes, yeah, she's um, Grace in uh, Peaky Blinders. There you go. So she and Tom Cruise and uh, Nick from New Girl, they all get in a plane and they've got this am i right is that what happens on the plane yeah so then there's a plane crash they've taken this little coffin and it the plane crashes and the reason why laura's doing that <laughs> listeners for those who that are not a knowing, good you're slightly Come torching on. my little review right now but <laughs> oh, no, you're like heckling me <laughs> the reason why is because uh universal released a trailer of this moment and they didn't upload the right trailer. It was the trailer which just had the sounds on it. Didn't have any of the dialogue or any of the music. And so repeatedly, you just got Tom Cruise screaming. <laughs> it's fun. It's so funny. I, it is. I like that particular last scream that he does, where he takes the deep breath first. It's fantastic. Do we can play it here? If you can find it, put it in. Okay, I'll do that. <laughs> Anyway, that's kind of the setup for the movie. And then there's a spoiler in the trailer. So if you want to have the movie spoiled right from the get go, watch the trailer. But I'm not going to because I don't think it should. Quite right. But regardless, it ends up that Tom Cruise becomes significant to Princess Armanet. And then there's a kind of weird link between the two. And is it a chase or who's chasing who basically becomes the, the kind of tone of the film. It's sort of an adventure, sort of an action adventure, sort of a horror yeah. In inverted commas. And I think it doesn't really work. It's sort of an okay film, but it's been absolutely torn to shreds by critics across the board. And I think the reason why is because of what you were talking about right at the beginning, Laurie. The extended universe thing. Yeah, the film is so concerned with setting up this franchise, this dark universe, that it kind of, it just leaves a rotten taste in your mouth. It tastes bad. It tastes like 
Well, like fast food being delivered to you, the most corporate of corporate products imaginable, being presented on what used to be the theatre of dreams, now it's the theatre of corporate profit margins, Phil. Very much so. I was going to go with spam. It tastes like spam, like overly processed and too thought through as a product. There's no natural goodness. There's no nutrients to it. It's just processed and cobbled together out of weird miscellaneous parts. And I reckon there's also a slight stench of depression and misery because every actor who signs on to this kind of project can only possibly be doing it because they are also looking at Marvel and all those guys and thinking, well, Robert Downey Jr. is the highest paid uh, actor in the world. And he's had six or seven projects right off the bat playing the same character. I could do that. And I feel like you look, you see it in their eyes that that's exactly what they want. And I think you're on the money there because I kind of think that's what Tom Cruise is doing. Yeah. It seems to be that this isn't really the right film for him. That's the impression I got so overtly, unbelievably so. I'm quite a big Tom Cruise fan in films. I think he's good at picking his roles. This film, this role does not suit Tom Cruise. It's the first time I've ever come across him and thought, this isn't right, this isn't your character, you shouldn't be playing this one. He's normally very good at picking his projects. And it makes me think, like you said, Laurie, he must be looking at what potentially could happen with this franchise. If he's signed on, he's probably signed on with a bit of a kickback from the profits of this big universe. I bet. Much like Robert Downey Jr. And if he gets that back, maybe that's where he's going to make his money in the later part of his career. But he's meant to be playing this scoundrel character, this sort of thief, this thief with a heart of gold, which is not Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is the honest, hardworking, all-American action hero. Well, I mean, he has played sort of slight bad boy roles in he's the He's played nasty people, but he's never played the sort of on-the-line, morally people. He's either very good or he's very bad. Mm, I'm not sure I agree, but okay, all right. Trust me, in this film, he does not suit <laughs> this character. I believe that, yes. What is even more awkward is the fact that the guy he's with, so he's playing a character called Nick, but he's alongside Nick from New Girl, <laughs> which I thought was not thought through. That's but funny. Nick from New Girl, Jake Johnston, I think it is, Johnson or something like that, I think he would be very good in this role. He's got that sort of slightly... He should be playing Tom Cruise. He should be mean? playing yeah. Tom Cruise's role. He should be sort of this jokester character, this sort of wisecracking guy... That's what the film seems to be wanting Tom Cruise to be, and it just doesn't fit together, it doesn't mesh. Not only that, the tone is wrong in this film, because you've got this horror horror character in Princess Armanet, who is quite nicely produced. Uh, I like the production value of her, she seems to have some creepiness to her. Yeah. But the film undercuts that with the most poorly judged timings for its jokes. There's one point where you've got Tom Cruise literally being held down by these sort of zombie creations that Princess Armanet has made. And he's being held down by them. And he's sort of, he gets tickled by them. <laughs> I'm not kidding. He's like, oh, oh, oh. he starts laughing, even though literally zombie creatures are holding him down. Like, that is what, weird. what are you doing? What weird. are you doing? It's not a comedy scene. It's meant to be the time when you ramp up the tension and the, the drama and what on earth is going to happen. And Tom Cruise is laughing. <laughs> it's just mind blowing. And I think those are kind of really the three faults of this film. Tom Cruise is miscast and you see he's doing it for the money. You've got a film which is desperate trying to set up its own franchise. And that's seen most evidently with Russell Crowe being in the film as Dr. Jekyll. It's Dr. Jekyll? Mm. Oh, dear. And then you've also got this misjudged tone. Is it a horror film? Is it an action adventure film? It doesn't really know and it seems to undercut itself. Do you know who directed this film? Uh, I don't. It's Alec Kurtzman, who is, you might know him more as a writer with a guy, I can't remember his first name, but his name is uh, Orsi. 
these two are kind of the guys behind some of the biggest franchises of the day. They're behind the Transformers franchise. They're behind the Star Trek first two films, the new ones. Yeah. They're the writers behind them. And this guy is now taking a step into director's chair. How interesting. Oh, this is it. I mean, this, it couldn't be more plain that studios think franchises, pot of gold, let's dip our fingers in. So e- let's even get one of the writers who's had success to direct a film. Yeah. I mean, I, I really don't want to keep talking about that because I'll annoy all our listeners, Phil, with my sadness. It is, it's sad, isn't it? Because you want them to make films which are thought through. Right, with right. And we're not being naive new ideas. Here. No, no one's being naive here. Surely, over the last 50 years, loads and loads of films have been made purely for the money. But I feel like it was less transparent in the past. And they had to at least excuse it as some kind of artistic vision or whatever it was. And the age of remakes and reboots just hadn't fully arrived. And then again, you have to look at Marvel, just to continue the discussion from before. Their ambition seemed to be they wanted to make an Avengers film. And in order to make the Avengers film, they had to do these setup films. And I think that's what they've done. They've slowly transformed into trying to get all their characters into big, big name, big brands, things. But their original intention was basically, we want to do an Avengers film. That's where we're heading. And I think there's some integrity to that, regardless of how you feel about them now. Initially, it did seem like they were just trying to see if they could make these things work into a movie. Yeah, I think you're possibly right there, Phil. Going back to The Mummy, I do want to say it's not, filmically, it's not as bad as some people are saying. I think it's put together kind of okay. It's just a below average blockbuster, really. There was an underwater sequence which had some sort of zombie mummies in the water. And I hadn't seen that for a while. I hadn't seen people swimming underwater. And whatever it is about water sequences, the fact that you know the actors having to hold their breath yeah, okay. makes it naturally a very exciting sequence. Tom Cruise has done that a lot, hasn't he? I thought it was good. It reminded me of the whales in uh, <laughs> Star Trek 4. Oh, nice one. Okay, well, Mission Impossible uh, 5 or whatever it was. Yeah, whatever. That was it. And so sort of as a film, it's like a C+. But for what it represents, it's much lower than that. It's kind of dis- distasteful. Oh, I'm really sad to hear that, Phil. Okay, on a positive spin, I hope it will be anyway. How did our own backyard look in the film? I remember strolling past the trailers, taking a photo of Armanette's uh, dressing room. Yeah, so you get to see the Radcliffe camera as Ooh. one of the locations with cars driving around it, which I was like, <laughs> as a, somebody who lives in Oxford, I was like, you can't do that. That's no. classic. They do that all the time. I love that. And then also uh, a back alley of a pub is used. The turf? No, 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 no. That's it's, where they were. That's where all the dressing rooms it's, were. That's the thing. The real life location is not a back alley to a pub. How funny. But Tom Cruise falls out of the back of a pub and then he's in this street, which Laurie and I know. We probably cycled down it. Which one? And it's very weird. I can't... It's the one which is kind of around from the bus stop yeah, on the high yeah, street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. You know the one, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of... I didn't really like it. It was distracting. <laughs> I kind of wish I didn't know that that's where they filmed it because... It just ruins it because you spend the whole time you're like, oh, oh, I see. They put like a door. Oh, oh, right. Okay. Why did they choose this location? That's all that I could think of in those scenes. It is funny because you realise how much CGI work gets done that you don't necessarily pick up on because they're using locations and inventing doors and rooms and things that just don't exist. And you almost wonder why they just film with what's there and save on the CGI budget. Who knows? Obviously, these location scouts... I don't want to get onto their turf. They obviously know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. But it was very distracting knowing that that was Oxford and knowing it was wrong how they were using it. Mm. But well, anyway, that... that's just a little local insight. No, I enjoyed it. I'm sure our Oxford fans feel the same way. Uh, yes, two, two, you've got two fingers up. What two bonuses. Represent? One, do you remember when you talked uh, last week about Russell Crowe and how, you, how he great said... How great he was. What was the quote he said? <laughs> he said, uh, your lines are garbage, but I'm the greatest actor in the world and I can make even garbage sound good. 
I'm going to say, no, you can't, because I've seen him deliver absolute garbage, and it sounded like garbage to me. Well, it is a long time ago now that he was in Gladiator, so maybe he's gone off the boil. I don't know. I don't think he's... Well, he's all right as Dr. Jekyll, but when Dr. the other person turns up, he is laughably bad. Oh, really? Laughably bad. Are you, just, are you saving that as a spoiler, as if people don't know who Dr. Jekyll's Well, laughing? just in case, but, okay. you, know, you know, I don't want to be accused, but everyone Fine. knows. If you know, you know. If you don't, you don't. There you okay. go. Thank you. The other bonus is, you know, when I said right at the very beginning, they discover this uh, tomb thing. Yes. And they do this thing where they drop down on ropes and things like that to look in and investigate. Yeah, yeah. The hole was too big. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> the hole <laughs> the hole was there. And then they go down and then suddenly it's this huge cavern, like the most ridiculously large cavern you've ever seen. And it was, it was like uh, Planet Earth. You know that bit when the guy jumped into the... Yeah, classic. But it's like, that's a unique place in the world. And they're saying this was just underneath the village like nobody noticed it just it's one of those weird things there's a living mummy that's walking around but that was the thing that bothered me it was like no that's that's not believable enough i do know where you're coming from phil i know what you're saying hole's too big yeah well there we go universal have got a lot of work to do to save their new franchise it would seem yeah i think the next one up is bride of frankenstein Okay, Phil, symbolism. Uh, do you want to know what I wrote down in my little notepad when I thought about this was symbolism, semicolon, who cares? <laughs> now, I would like to know whether you care or anyone actually cares apart from people in universities writing essays about symbolism in films. I think people do care. Why do they care and why does it matter? Well, I know I, I don't want to get in trouble, but our mum definitely cares because do you remember that scene in uh, Lord of the Rings? Yes, when Phil, Aragorn you're going to say. in Two Towers. You know what? You tell it then. Well, okay. When Aragorn walks into Rohan, the flag falls down, and the idea is well, that king's time is ending, and here is the new king, right? And it was a, a point that our mum was very keen but to point out. That's a really out. good example there because she. I thought that was insightful, and I thought, oh yeah, she's right. At the same time, who cares? <laughs> like, <laughs> what difference does that make? in the film now I want what I want to understand here is that you can easily immediately claim oh it taps into some kind of subconscious and it really improves the film on a subconscious level I don't believe that you know the, the reason I started thinking about this Phil is against my own better judgment knowing what kind of uh, small man I am I watched a video by the nerd writer on YouTube yep. and you have se- previously said to me oh you, you won't like this guy why yeah, you, don't, you won't like it the way he talks. Why he, won't I like him, Phil? Because everything he says is like the most important thing in the world, and it's, he's talking about like the Simpsons. Yeah, well, so he did a little thing on the children of men. And oh, he yeah. Said, don't ignore the background was his thing. I'd encourage everyone to watch it so you know the kind of thing I'm talking about. And it's about 15 minutes of relentless symbolism to no point whatsoever. But as far as I can tell, I kind of thought, well, I understand everything you're saying. Well done. You've spotted the fact that there's an old painting there that's to do with this. And there's also an- another thing in another scene that talks about the same theme. I'm still thinking, well, I didn't notice that and it makes no difference. And even if you do notice it, what are you supposed to do with that in the context of a film? Are you supposed to pause the film and think, hang on a minute, I recognise those two paintings. They're saying this. Oh, so he must be linking that theme. In with-. Like, I just, I'm genuinely intrigued to know in the fast-paced visual medium of film, to w- what value does symbolism offer anyone besides academics? Uh, I think that's an interesting point. I disagree. Not, I think... I'm not meaning it to be. I'm deliberately being provocative here. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. A little caveat. Always a caveat. Always. Laurie the caveat. 
Sorry, I'll give you a superhero name. <laughs> I, I disagree. I think it builds theme, doesn't it? And it's one of the toolkits for uh, a creative person to use to build up their idea, their uh, thoughts. The, the symbolism is just a tool to address the themes of the film, isn't it? Or a, or a book or whatever. You use it as a, a building block. And it's, yes, you're right. Maybe nobody noticed it. Maybe it's not there. But you put it there because you want to say something. You want to convey something. And you can use symbols to convey something about something you're actually filming about. I, I'm glad you're saying, you know, but you, you switched people there because you were saying you, 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 you for a long time there. And as far as I can tell... It, the only time this ever happens is when people are talking about a film they've already seen and in an attempt to make it the deepest, most serious thing ever, they read multiple layers into something. But I think, I disagree. I think there is a sense in which your brain does absorb those little things. Well, and yes. And those little things, you link, you, you link them up to the other things in the film. So the thing which I'm thinking about is I remember talking about this bit in Jurassic Park, the very beginning, when uh, he's, uh, what's his name, Doctor... Who's uh, Sam Neill in that film? Oh, what's he? Alan? Alan Grant. Dr. Grant. Dr. Grant. He's in the helicopter and he can't buckle his, um, his seatbelt because he's got two female bits for his belt. Mm-hmm. And so after a while, he just ties them together. And that then is kind of linked to the idea that nature finds a way. Well, OK, so now you're saying that's different than what you said. I thought you were trying to express something about Sam Neill's character. I think that expresses Sam Neill's character very well. I didn't find my mind abstracting that and saying, yeah, I guess this really reflects the, uh, the themes of the narrative. But then why... If it wasn't there, it wouldn't make a difference. I agree with you there. No, no, it would, because it paints Sam Neill's character very well. So it does say something about Sam Neill's character, but I think if it wasn't there, if they didn't have that motif, that symbol, then it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't take away from the film, but it doesn't detract from the film being there. Well, I agree with you on that one. And uh, one thing I do want to say that you pointed out to me is another Alfonso Cuaron film, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. You pointed out to me, I think this was another YouTube thing, right? And they said, notice the way that Harry is almost always taken away from the, his friends or moved to the side and made isolated in a number of different scenes. And it was a way of showcasing the fact that he's he's getting a growing sense of, well, Harry is actually unique and set He's apart. on his own. Exactly. That's the kind of symbolism I can get on board with because even if you don't take the time to notice it, that is coming through to you. That is being communicated to you on a subconscious level. I'm not talking about actually good symbolism i'm talking about the kind of children and men symbolism which doesn't do either of the things that you said but that's is easter eggs my isn't whole it point, in the background yeah, exactly phil it's easter eggs <laughs> it's referencing which is a plague on the house of cinema who cares <laughs> i still say it. who cares like easter eggs fine fans knock yourselves out but don't pretend it makes a filmmaker good or that it makes a film good it doesn't it's irrelevant it doesn't make the film good and it doesn't make the filmmaker good but I do think people like them. I remember... They like them. That's great. People love an Easter egg So therefore hunt. it has a point. It has a point. Because people enjoy them. If people enjoy them, great. And they're not there to be uh, noticed by the casual viewer. They're there to be noticed by the supreme fan. I mean... I flipping love going on IMDb and reading the trivia section. I look, I love that stuff too. Okay, maybe look, I, I hear what you're saying. Maybe that's the thing that does bug me. It's that often these things are used as a way to say how clever the filmmaking is and... I, I think that stuff shouldn't be a focus for any kind of filmmaker. The focus has got to be on whoever your audience member is. Make it for them. Make it a good film. Don't rely on the Uber fans. No, and I agree. And I I think, in my mind, symbolism is just a tool that some filmmakers use to build their theme. It's assisting the theme. 
what you're saying is like, oh, now we've got this theme already, trying to fill in with all these pre- like pretentious references to other pieces of art and culture and everything like that, almost to show how smart they are. Yeah. That's obnoxious. When it serves the story, brilliant. Well, we're in an agreement and disagreement at the same time. Listeners, I'm really interested to know if you've got any amazing examples of symbolism that you love and whether you think I'm an idiot for expressing my view <laughs> in such a way, which most people will think. Well, I even think it. <laughs> so there we go. Uh, all right. Send your thoughts in. Superbellybros at gmail.com at superbellybros on Twitter. Thanks. Uh, so well, I, this is kind of what we've been watching, but not. Yeah. All right. Do a little um, new jingle, Phil. Here we go. I watched this at the cinema, and I'm telling you about it now. We're not getting. We're not getting better at these. Actually. No, I'm not good at the jingles. You're the musical. No, man. I was rubbish last time. I came up with that email song. Anyway, the, the point of this segment, listeners, is Phil has been to see Baywatch and Wonder Woman, two fairly big films in the last couple of weeks that I got to see ahead of you. But I want to know what you think, man. It's interesting because. I've this is kind of what I imagine listeners have felt if they've listened to your reviews and then gone to see it because I couldn't help but have your reviews in my head when I watched it and so Baywatch I went in pleasantly surprised because it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be and the humor wasn't as crude and crass as I suspected it might be it wasn't as sort of blatantly trying to go for gross out humor and Zac Efron was kind of charming and The Rock was kind of good in a weird sort of way but at the same time, I still don't really know what to put it as a film. Well, what category, you mean? Yeah, and I think this is partly the reason why it's not done well at the box office, because Baywatch, we talked about the franchise of Baywatch and what it was famous for, and of course it's famous for girls running on beaches and yeah, slowly. Yeah. And it seems to be that this film doesn't, isn't, it's trying to shift what Baywatch is about into something which is now acceptable in our current society of values about objectifying women and things like that. So it gets rid of the sort of scantily clad women running on the beaches instead places it too with hunky guys who well, are always you, shirtless. But you agree with me, right, that they didn't avoid that. And I love that line from Alexandra Daddario still, we're going to be in bathing suits a lot. Is that a problem? Because the girls are in bathing suits, and but so are the men. And if anything, they've, yeah, like you say, they've deliberately maxed out on getting two uber-muscly men and they, get, they do a weightlifting contest, don't they? Yeah, but then I kind of think that isn't... We have this thing about, oh, we don't want to be objectifying anyone at all. But then I think audiences do you kind of like that? And I'm not saying that's what I wanted to see in the, the film, but it doesn't surprise me it hasn't done well because I think people went in hoping they would see some scanty clad women, yeah, if that is, makes sense. I think there are definitely a lot of angry male fans. I think there's no doubt about that based on some of the reviews I've seen, not just for that reason, but for other reasons as well. Well, I think we should say those reasons <laughs> the morgue explicitly. Scene, there's think? a morgue scene where you see an adult male's uh, private parts. Yeah, for quite a long time. It's <laughs> and very it's, funny. And it is quite funny, but also... I'm sure there's some teenage boys who didn't really want to see those They thought parts. they were going to get Pamela Anderson and they got that. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. And maybe they can't, they're not comfortable with the fact that they have to watch something like that. They don't know where to put themselves after seeing that sort of scene. Possibly. I do think, I disagree with you though, I don't think the female characters had enough going for them. I said that, Phil. Is that what you said? Yeah. I you think are, I you gave you, me you a said, female character thing and I said the only one who has anything to do is Alexandra Daddario. But even then, I don't think she has anything to do. I don't think she has a character. Okay. I was really disappointed because there's all this chat about the the, first, the villain being a female and what Priyanka that, Chopra, yeah. Yeah, what that symbolises and everything like that. I think it's kind of nothing. It doesn't mean anything. You've taken a franchise which could have been all about uh, girls being awesome and doing great stuff and you basically had two men, two of the biggest sort of men, male stars, do everything. That is true. They had a lot of scenes that was just those two as well. And it's all about their arcs as characters. Yeah, that's true. That's fair. I agree with you, Phil. I thought they were generally underwritten, especially Stephanie uh, and what's her name, Kelly Rohrbach's role as well. Although they gave her some comic release stuff to do as well. 
overall, I was pleasantly surprised with Baywatch, and I kind of want to give you a plus one because I Thanks, think you man. got it on the money. There's a couple of things which I think could have been better. I don't really understand why it's not done better. It's strange that it's done so poorly. Yeah. But then maybe that's to be expected because Baywatch isn't really a franchise for changing. It's about delivering exactly what it does on the tin, if you know what I mean. Well, let's see whether we get another one. It'd be interesting to know whether it's got legs. Oh. Um, that, wasn't, oh. that wasn't even really a joke, was it? Zing, zing. It wasn't, it wasn't a joke. <laughs> it doesn't deserve even a zing. And, and then Wonder Woman you saw as well. Yeah, and similarly, I had your thoughts from last week's episode ringing my head as I yeah. watched it. I do think it was quite good. I quite enjoyed it. I think that it was a little bit cheesy and yeah, a little definitely. bit over the top in terms of what it was trying to say in its message or things. I think, think actually so? the more interesting characters, I think, are the male characters. Oh, really? Unfortunately, I think Chris Pine is brilliant in the film. I was really interested in him and what his arc was in the film. But of course, the focus is Wonder Woman. And unfortunately, Wonder Woman by nature of her character is a bit one note, I do think. It's quite nice watching her discover uh, the modern world, so uh, as it is in the 1910s or whatever. But it means that she's very flat. She has no real arc to go through, I don't think. It's a shame because, I mean, you could say the same thing about Superman. The problem is that with Wonder Woman, you know, she don't, you don't see her adolescence, really. Whereas Superman, his arc tends to be being young and not knowing what to do with his powers, right? And he's then, grounded in the fact that he's with the Kent family. Yeah, exactly. Whereas she is brought up amongst these super women all the whole time. And her only arc is, oh, this is what the world's like, right? Yeah, and it's sort of a one-note discovery sort of thing. I didn't oh, mind Oh, the world it. is not very nice. I think that's how her character's written. So in a way, it's faithful. Yeah, and hopefully that means that as the franchise goes on, they can do more with it and make her more interesting and more developed. I think it was quite a good start. I agree with you. The action wasn't very good. I agree with you that the No Man's Land scene was your voice is ringing in my ear as I watched it. Because <laughs> I'm I thought, sorry, Phil. I thought, this is so inappropriate. I do agree you think with it you. was? I really do. I think, why on earth is Wonder Woman saving these uh, these men who are giving their lives, who actually gave their lives in yeah, the past? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't match up. It's bad. It, it, it there felt- are so many other things that could have been used in World War One for that context, just not that specific thing. And as soon as you get past the uh, the No Man's Land scene, you have a scene where uh, Wonder Woman and her little team attack uh, sort of a, a stronghold, a German stronghold in a village. And that was that did the job fine. So yeah. I don't know why they just didn't jump ahead well, to that. interestingly, a little tidbit I picked up is that the studio wanted to cut, cut the No Man's Land scene and the director, Patty Jenkins, fought to include it because she felt it was the defining moment for the character. So, I mean, that doesn't make you feel better about Patrick No, it Jenkins. makes you feel worse. It makes yeah. you think, oh, you misjudged this. But, you know, a lot of people like that scene. So maybe we're just the odd ones out. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. Uh, but overall, I think the film is a success. I made me, made me tear up at the end. Oh, did it? Yeah. I thought nah. it was a proof of its uh, success in the and fact it, that... It's funny it, as well, isn't it? it did you agree me. with me that the humour is a different tone to Marvel? Yes. It's not quite, oh, smart Alec sarcasm. It's sort of genuine jokes and sort of funny situations. Quite good-natured, yeah. I really liked her having to constantly be covered up because she's like, these clothes are inappropriate yeah, for, yeah. for war. And Chris Pine sort of desperately saying, no, you can't wear this. You've <laughs> got to, come on, put your sword away. I love that. That was great. Nice. And the fish out of war stuff, I could take that any any time of day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not nicely said, Phil. Yeah, there's a reason why those films keep getting made. Splash. George of the Jungle, all that kind of stuff. Even Thor did it in the first film. Yeah, sure, sure. Listeners, tell us what you think about that. I hope that's interesting. There's a um, lot of discussion in amongst there of issues and Yeah, bits and, and bobs. you know, this is the kind of stuff Phil and I talk about all the time off uh, <laughs> air, basically, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. I've enjoyed this segment because it's just <laughs> us chatting. 
uh, and this is what we want from you as well so if you've got thoughts like that on any of the films we've been talking about for I don't know months and months let us know and we'll be delighted to throw that into the mix reach us at the usual place okay film I'll go through my two other film reviews fairly quickly and you'll see why they're going to be quick shortly listeners first up on the list is Churchill and this comes out today the day the podcast is being released it stars Brian Cox it's got Miranda Richardson it's got you know a moderately big cast James Purefoy as well our favourite Edward the Black Prince from Mm -hmm. uh, A Knight's Tale Uh, he's playing uh, King George VI most recently uh, won Colin Firth an Oscar of course in in the the King's King's Speech Speech. yeah exactly and they're covering the same sort of period of time this is set in 1944 and it is something like six days before the D-Day landings launch. Operation Overlord, it's called. So the Joint Chiefs of Staff have planned this huge uh, dropping off of troops in the beaches of Normandy in France so that you can land all these troops and take the war to Germany, to Hitler, and we'll defeat him that way. And of course... If you know history, which I don't, <laughs> I'm saying this because I looked it up before doing the show, uh, then they were hugely significant, right? Not long yeah. after that, the war was concluded. Uh, in 1945, I think it was, but obviously it had been rumbling on for quite some time before then. And Churchill was still Prime Minister of England at that time. He led his party until the age of 80, I think, so it was in his much later years. Uh, and he was involved in military actions and in political actions, in PR, as you were saying there, Phil, all kinds of things. This film purports to go through... Churchill's experiences before D-Day and the key thing they do which has been roundly battered by historians is suggest that a week before these plans were due to happen he was dead against it and tried to stop it from happening all because he was tortured at the memory of Gallipoli which was another water landing in in the First World War in which countless numbers of young men lost their lives and the idea is that he's so troubled by this he wants to try and stop D-Day happening like that at any cost and come up with another solution which involved invading Bordeaux and Italy and all that sort of stuff so here's a clip of Brian Cox playing Winston Churchill talking to Miranda Richardson who is playing his wife Clementine or Clementine and you can hear the way that they've decided to play Churchill here we go Margaret's holding a dinner afterwards Ike spoke to you didn't he I ran this country and this war for more than two years before these Americans even turned up yet it's as if my experience my knowledge of warfare counted for nothing so Ike has a great deal of experience of warfare Maybe you should listen to him. Is everyone to overrule everything I say? The king appointed me prime minister of this country, and it's my duty to lead them through this war. Don't assume you're the only one capable of making decisions. Is this about the war? Or is it about you and me? Do you want to be coddled, Winston? I'd settle for some respect. Then don't complain when someone tells you the truth. Yeah, there we go. So, I mean, in a sentence, if you would like to see someone imagine Churchill as a spoilt, patronised child, then watch this film. You'll have a whale of a time. That scene is repeated for the film's two-plus-hour runtime in almost every other context you can imagine. Nothing more and nothing less gets said other than Winston Churchill, Brian Cox, blustering about saying, I used to be important. Did no one care that I used to run the war? What, why, why can't you let me have a say in things? And everyone else around him patronising and saying, come now, Churchill, take your pills. 
You know, just stand at the front of millions of people and make your speech and then then why not go back to bed? And oh no, I know, I know, Churchill, I know that you used to be someone important, but let's just leave the war to the people who know what they're doing. okay? And then they say amongst each other, well, just let him talk to the troops and let him feel like he's involved a little bit. You know, we need to make sure he's happy as well. And in between that, Churchill shouts at everybody. He hates everyone. He has racked with self-doubt. He concocts ridiculous plans that are loosely based on truth. And he makes himself out to be, in this film, the most pathetic excuse for a prime minister that maybe the world has ever seen. And it doesn't help that there's apparently almost no budget in this production, so you very rarely see any crowds. You see absolutely none of Churchill's political work. Let's not forget he was prime minister of the country. Apparently all Churchill did in the war was mope around massive empty rooms in his own house, trying to get in on these military meetings, and the rest of the time was just on his own, feeling sad. It's as if he didn't have a country to run. All he did was try and make his voice heard at military meetings. And what's got to be said is that the writer for this is apparently some kind of historian. Uh, She's Alex von Tunzelman, and she has admitted that she has changed certain elements of the story uh, to suit her own dramatic needs. Uh, In particular, she has been slammed by a Churchill biographer called Andrew Roberts, and I really encourage you to look up uh, his thoughts on the subject. He says she gets nearly every single thing wrong, and no one can understand why someone has taken it upon themselves to paint such a miserable uh, derogatory portrait of someone who means so much to so very many people. And I want to say, Phil, before you jump in, I'm all for history being told as it was, but this is self-admittedly a distortion of history so why 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 why? phil your guess is as good as mine i hated it other than other than all that sort of stuff aside it's a terrible film to watch because it's boring in one note it's so slow scenes are drawn out interminably the performance from brian cox would be good if he had anything to work with in the script as it is he just shouts and spouts rubbish and he comes across like an old guy who gets annoyed that no one pays him any attention it's so annoying to watch you you got no sympathy for anybody the music is omnipresent and depressing and plodding and boring there's those kind of endless monotonous piano uh, things that sound like they're written by ludovico einaudi and there's slow strings everything is in this sort of sepia tint there's some nice focus work and some nice shot construction but the whole thing is just dreadful so it gets a d a d for me if i could give it an f i give it an f wow okay i think you're getting a sense that you really don't like it but what do you think it's trying to achieve I don't, I, I, the only thing I can think is that whoever this writer is, this historian, is that she's got some kind of agenda. She wants people to think that Churchill wasn't the great man he was. Perhaps they want us to see that he was nothing but a figurehead and it was only the people around Churchill who had any sort of contribution at all. There's this really terrible moment where having belittled him and he has shown himself to be you know, useless, basically, at the end he makes a speech to people just for D-Day. And, we're, and then everyone applauds and everyone's roused by it. But it's the most hollow feeling I've had to the end of a film ever because I just, I just don't get it. If Churchill is the way that he's portrayed, then those speeches are worse than meaningless. They're, they're, they're worthless. And is there a person among us who wants to see that? No, I don't think so. Phil, is that too much? It's, it's, uh, I'm just getting your very strong emotions about it, but maybe this is the sense that lots of people have had in reaction to this film. So... Maybe it's quite authentic reaction to, the, to the, it. The thing I can't really forgive, and it's a problem I have with historical dramas full stop, and we need to talk about it at some point, is that it has the sort of white texty stuff um, and all of the trappings of it 
try to present it as if this historian has had access to per- Churchill's own personal diaries or was there uh, seeing the real story, giving us the real story behind the man. You and know. you think it's a complete load of rubbish? Well, I just think what what yeah, I it seems unforgivable to me. <laughs> Honestly, I, I don't I don't get it. I don't like it. I really want to know whether I'm an idiot. I'm not a Churchill biographer. I've had to go completely by what I've been able to find out and read. But I admit, even without knowing anything, something seemed off to me. It didn't sit well. No, it's the same scene over and over again. It's dreadful. A bad film and bad themes and ideas. No surprise, the embargo was held until the day of release. Let's put it that Mm, way. Okay. Right, shall I move on? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, the next film I saw, well, I wonder how people feel about this, is Malut. And this is a really, really odd film uh, that I can't recommend. I'll lay it out right now. And listeners, you might want to press the 15 seconds forward button on your podcast device if you've had enough of me being down about films, (laughs) which does sometimes happen. Mm. Uh, This is also known as Slack Bay. It's directed and written by someone called Bruno Dumont, a French filmmaker who is renowned for being something of an author. Someone described his films as having an extreme seriousness, like that's the style they're going for. And now he's transplanted himself into slapstick comedy with some kind of satirical biting edge. What? Yeah, I know. I'm afraid I haven't seen his back catalogue, so I don't really know what to make of him. I don't have a big background in obscure French art house cinema. But the basic setup here is that in the north of France in the early 1900s, there is a bay frequented by rich, wealthy tourists that is also home to very poor fishermen uh, and families of people who work on the seas. And there's this odd sort of thing where there's a bay in particular, this slack bay, where sometimes it's low tide and these poor fishing families will take uh, the rich people from one side of the bay to the other in their boat. So there's frequent scenes of them picking up these, you know, frillily decorated noble men and noble ladies just hoisting them up and putting them in a boat and rowing them across the shore there's a family on one side of the bay who live in this massive sort of artistic house uh, and they holiday there because it's so beautiful and there are a lot of biting sort of scenes in which they sit there and look at a fisherman in a boat talking about the beautiful authentic simplicity and how wonderful all this poverty is because it's the true quintessence of nature cantassons they say or something like that and we're supposed to think these are bourgeois idiots right right and there are suggestions later on in the film that inbreeding plays a part and all that kind of stuff and it, it's kind of a horrible portrait of a, kind of a worrying class thing mm. then on the other side this Fisher family who you know you're, you feel like you maybe you're gearing up to feel sympathetic towards them I'm going to spoil it for you listeners are very quickly revealed to be cannibals so they sometimes that's these, a left turn I know sometimes these people they take across the in their in their boat these rich people they couldn't care less for sometimes they just kill them and eat them instead uh, once or twice and this all leads to some Thompson and Thompson slash Laurel and Hardy esque French police officers turning up to this area and trying to investigate the disappearances of these people you know and the the lead detective is called uh, Machin which is like machine or device I think. And he is somehow inflatable and is continually falling over and rolling down these sand dunes. And he's supported by uh, a red-headed leaner detective called Malfoy. <laughs> and they kind of had this weird interplay between themselves. And, I mean, listeners, if it's sounding bizarre and a bit distasteful, it is both of those things. I lack the understanding and the nuance of French history when it comes to class dynamics uh, and the north of france as a, as a character and you know poverty in the economy of france if there's symbolism and some kind of reference there i'm not getting it to me it was just really 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 odd it's what's the name of that uh, oscar film that you saw which was a comedy german comedy oh that was called tony erdman right yeah that's much that's completely different that's in another league that makes narrative sense and it was slightly surreal 
but it was easy to follow and it wasn't distasteful. This is surreal and distasteful and bizarre and I think can only be appreciated if you know something about the area Inaccessible or about the to international audiences. Yeah, and I just need to say, alongside that detective plot, there is a, a sort of subplot where the oldest son of this cannibalistic Fisher family is called Malut. He's an older teenager, and he kind of starts a romance with Billy, who is a cousin of the children of this bourgeois family, um, who sometimes dresses as a boy and sometimes dresses as a girl. So there's all kinds of bizarre messaging going on. I didn't understand it. I was a bit grossed out by it. It was sort of funny in a completely absurdist manner, but I it doesn't really click with me, listeners, and I'm in no hurry to watch it or a film like it again. The one thing I will give it is that the photography is really quite stunning. I was thinking this with Churchill with its kind of sepia-tinted, overblown, dramatic, you know, dripping with sentimentality cinematography. This one really knows, he knows how to use handheld cameras and he knows how to make use of a a sort of bleak colour palette uh, and odd sort of rich interiors. There's some really great camera work and lighting and framing going on here. But when the rest of the film is so odd, it's hard to really enjoy it. So art house comedy, who knew? Not very funny. Yeah, and this is, yeah, basically. And this is one of those films where I don't really know what to give it because I've never seen a film like it. I don't know how to categorise it. How did you enjoy it? Give it a grade for your enjoyment. Uh, probably a C plus, I think, because I could see elements in it that are enjoyable, but it was too odd for me and too kind of gross for me. And yeah, there are some pretty, pretty unpleasant themes in there. If you can't access the humour or the symbolism behind those themes, it's very hard to enjoy the film. Well, there you go. Two upbeat films from Laurie. There. Well, I hope that was okay, and I hope that I hope you've got to deal enough. the hand you dealt, man. That's that's just the way it is. <laughs> we said it? that last week, didn't we? Yeah, exactly. We can't choose the films that are released. Exactly, exactly. So I don't blame you at all. <laughs> Sounds like you've done something bad. You haven't. Thanks you very much for watching yeah, these films and giving us your review. Not at all. Oh, and as ever, listeners, I'm going to play you out with the trailer this time because it's French language. You probably won't understand it, but here's a little indicator of the tone for you. Quel bonheur à chaque fois de retourner sur cette côte Oui, regardez là-bas, ces cueilleurs de moules Qu'est-ce que pue cette carrière Oh, comme c'est pittoresque La glycine Elle a pris deux mètres Tout pousse, André Tout pousse Et mon petit frère, comment va-t-il Jamais je ne m'habituerai à la beauté de ce paysage, jamais Attends, vous venez tous les ans Et toi, tu t'appelles comment what have we been watching this week? Ooh. <laughs> Deep. Strange. And Phil, we've got to do this really fast, man. Are you ready for a challenge? Yeah, what's the challenge? We've got to do this in five minutes or less, not including the trailer time, of course. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, let's do it, let's do it. Do you think you can do it? Yeah, well, what's your movie? I'm going to do The Host, the Stephanie Meyer adaptation. I'm going to do The Bicentennial Man with Robin Williams. <laughs> okay, should we do you first? Yeah. Bicentennial Man. Everybody downstairs. Come on, you guys, I've got a surprise for you. What is it, Daddy? Wait, wait, wait. Wow. By the year 2005... Are you once family? I guess so. Every home will have an NDR-114. Andrew, this is very good. Thank you, sir. I think it sucks. Sucks. Chickens do not have lips. <laughs> he was designed to serve humans. Would you please open the window? One is glad to be of use. Now jump. No! Out the window. 
But there was something different about Andrew. Two cannibals were eating a clown. One turns to the other and says, does this taste funny to you? <laughs> How do you make a hanky dance? Put a little boogie in it. <laughs> what exactly is it doing? He shows a number of characteristics like creativity, curiosity, friendship. Good night, sweetheart. Good night, Andrew. It is a household appliance. And yet you act like it is a man. You're unique. I feel responsibility to help you become whatever you're able to be. This Christmas, witness one robot's extraordinary 200-year journey. He learns and grows all the time. To become... This is an external, physical upgrade only. ...an ordinary man. I believe in my... The secret to all this is imperfection. That's what makes us unique. I like the shape of your head. It's huge. Oh. I believe in miracles. This looks wonderful. Take the next step. Destiny. From the director of Mrs. Doubtfire comes an epic story. I saw the inner me. That will bridge the gap between man and machine. It works! What the hell is going on? I am the proud owner of a central nervous system. You can feel. Will you perform an experiment just for the sake of science? All right. Kiss me. everything they say it is. Bicentennial Man. Look what I'm doing here. I am trying to make something of myself. I am trying to fulfill my destiny. Does she notice? Could we talk about this another time? I'm pretty certain that's the same voiceover guy does the parent trap. <laughs> the trailer. Yeah, you might be right. Uh, this film is bizarre in the sense that it's, I think it's like three hours long and it stars Robin Williams and as you heard it's directed by the guy who did Mrs. Doubtfire and the trailer certainly presents it as sort of as almost like a parent trappy type movie, yeah. a friendly family film and it is kind of a family film but also it is kind of sci-fi and uh, philosophical and uh, introspective and it's all about this central character of Andrew who Robin Williams plays. He is an android, a sort of service bot to this family, which is uh, headed by Sam Neill. And he's different than all the other ones. He's got a bit of creativity to him. And it really does span the decades, this story, following Andrew as he goes from sort of a naive young robot to maybe, just maybe, a human being, a kind of a valid human in all of all the qualities except for being naturally born. I think it's got some really nice moments in there. It's a long slog. It's one of those perfect sort of Sunday afternoon movies. You start it and have a break, have a have a Kit Kat, have a cup of tea in the middle. You go outside for a little wander, do the laundry, you know, break it up. <laughs> but I think it's enjoyable. And because it spans the decades and the tones shift over the time, over those three hours, it kind of goes through different elements. You almost grow with the film if it makes any sense. That makes any sense at all. I remember seeing this film when I was very young, kind of under around ten. I think it was amazing, mm. and I still like and remember certain scenes. I think there's a really nice scene when he goes from having this sort of very robotic, kind of like uh, one of those Cybermen in Doctor Who, who yeah, looks, yeah, yeah, to Robin Williams, and you see uh, the Doctor who helps him do that put like the hair follicles in his head and slowly build up his face and put skin on and things like that and he slowly acquires the quality the the physical qualities of a human over the course of the film i like that i like watching somebody develop and grow it's a very obvious character art because you literally see him change over the course of this uh, three hour long movie and robin williams is kind of warm and endearing he's a nice person to be around for three hours and it's got a bit of romance, it's got a bit of comedy, it's got a bit of sort of genuine introspection, I think. I think what is 
great about science fiction films in general. <laughs> I'm nearly there. Let me the finish. Don't, that's distracting me. I'm not going to do that to you. Okay. What's great about science fiction films is they often make us think about ourselves and what it is to be people. And I think this film does that in the end. At the very end, it does raise interesting questions. You've done a very good job there, Phil. What's the grade? Grade for me is B minus. No, B. B, B. Okay. What I will say to you is that this just proves that a well-written soundtrack, strong direction, and Robin Williams can make even the creepiest story imaginable Why is it seem creepy? like a hot... Phil, do I need to even... You know... Well, because they get romantic. Everything <laughs> about it is... If, you, if that film was remade with today's darker sort of tones, it would be the most horrifying thing you'd ever seen. I don't know. I don't think it would be. I think, like, the listeners, I don't think I need to say, again, how I feel about films where it's like, what if an AI developed feelings? Because <laughs> no one's got any interesting ideas. But I don't think it is about that. I think it's about no, humanity, not about the robot. Nice job, Phil. No, you're right. That was just a cheap shot by me. <laughs> Classic Laurie. I know. What right. is your film? Uh, I am going to do The Host. I'm sorry that you die. It's impossible. My name is Jared Howe. I haven't spoken to another human being in two years. Melanie Strider. This is the beginning of a love story. And that might not seem like a big deal, except for one thing. This is the future, and humanity is all but extinct. We have been invaded by another species who erase our minds to take our bodies. But there are a few of us left who still fight back. I'll lead them away. Melody, no! Come with us. Like hell! Barely a bone not broken or organ ruptured. This one wants to live. Human bodies take a lot of getting used to. They're not like the others we have inhabited. Their emotions are powerful. If her will has survived along with her memories, she may resist from within. anything to get her back i gotta know is melanie in there i'm waking up Do you know that I, I Imagine Dragons, that mate? Is it good? It was a big hit. It's that's a good, well chosen little song for the end of that trailer. Listeners, thankfully, the trailer did most of the explanatory work for me. Saoirse Ronan is playing uh, a woman in an uh, imagined future where aliens have come down. They're sort of like sluggy things. They go into human bodies and they take over that body. So they are very well behaved in the world. So you know, she described as this utopia, but the humans are kind of dying out. They're gradually being taken over by these aliens who wander the galaxy looking for hosts which is why it's called that and Saoirse Ronan is Melanie until Wanderer this slug 
Berg takes her over. But there's a sort of struggle going on because Melanie is such a strong-willed human surviving. She is sort of battling with Wanderer and communicating with her inside her own body. So there's she's doing things that she shouldn't really be doing. Wanderer is trying to control the body, but Melanie's persuading it to jump out and escape. Uh, Melanie's persuading it to try and find the humans. And there's this dialogue all the way through the film where the aliens are learning about the humans and the humans are learning about the aliens. Eventually, Melanie makes it to a sort of safe house where she meets a bunch of other people as well, including Max Irons, who's the handsome hunk who was in love with Melanie and now can't, can't really handle the fact that Melanie might be lost for good because this alien slug has taken over her body. And there are a bunch of other people in there as well, including William Hurt, playing this guy Jeb, who kind of runs it. And I think it's a fairly good film, Phil. I think the story sounds kind of rubbish and it's had accusations of it being linked to Scientology. I don't know anything about that. But as far as gentle sci-fi that does make you vaguely wonder goes it's okay i think it's quite poorly scripted and stephanie meyer the author of twilight does not have exactly a great track record for writing good characters Mm. compelling characters maybe but not good characters and the bad guys one of whom is diane kruger are quite poorly played like they don't flesh out this sort of society of aliens very well so it's very one note but the as far as the central struggle and idea goes what can we learn about these aliens can aliens learn about us is there a way that we can coexist what is great about humanity what's not about humanity i think it's pretty well done so if you want a fairly gentle sci-fi story which let's be honest mostly takes place in a cave (laughs) then uh, then this is kind of for you how does it deal with the whole voices internally speaking you just hear saoirse ronan chatting to herself and she looks worried does she Uh, have different voices yeah, uh, no. Hello, I'm the slug girl. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's, she's American throughout. One thing that is interesting is that I'd say one of the most striking things about Saoirse Ronan is her eyes as an actress. I think that's one of the things that's quite captivating about her because she can do a lot with a close-up. Eye performances. Yeah, there you go. Exactly, eye acting. But they make her wear a lot of contacts because when these slugs take over, you, their eyes change. The, the irises kind of get lit up in a neon way. Uh, so I just thought that was interesting to take the most distinctive feature and change it. Strange. Mm. What's the grade? Uh, it probably gets a, a B minus. It's not great, but it, it's it's fine. Any bases? I'm just trying to make your wrong time. Are <laughs> <laughs> oh, you trying to make me lose the content? Yeah, exactly. Honestly, Phil, I can't really think of any. It's pretty average, but it's fine. There you go. What have we been watching? There you go. That was very At light brief. speed. <laughs> yeah, it was. I feel like I said more in my little two minutes than I did normally. I know this is the thing, Phil. It's it, it always the way. Deadlines focus the mind, don't they? Limitations are always the bedrock of creativity. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. We should do it more often. Okay, listeners, let us know if you've seen either of those two films. Give us a plus one if you agree with us, minus one if you disagree, and always say why. Send it to superbellybros at gmail.com at superbellybros on Twitter. Thanks very much. Okay, email time. We've had a few this week. Thanks so much for getting in touch. First up, sorry, is this too fast for an intro filter? I need to say more. Do I need to do a song? Do a song. No, I don't want to do a song. Emails, emails, emails. Great job. Okay. The Natural got in touch. Dear Super Belly Bros, we felt that Wonder Woman stands as distinctively different from other DC movies and in a good way. It was refreshing for them to take time over the background characters so there was a good understanding of why she'd want to behave in the way that she did and also to understand why some things would upset her. The look was great and they played nicely with her being totally out of place in the wartime setting with impressive fight sequences. Chris Pine is just right for this kind of role. Do you think they've left the door open for more from him? It wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me, but at the same time... It's from what the ninety years ago in the in the film story. That's isn't true. It? They're probably going to catch up pretty fast to Justice League, right? Yeah, I think Justice League is this year. Yeah, I think you might be right, Phil. Uh, he goes on. Uh, Professor Lupin did a good job. <laughs> uh, yes, I agree. Gal Gadot was convincingly otherworldly, but still relatable and enjoyably athletic. Altogether, a good afternoon at the cinema. 
Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Well said. I think that's about right. It's enjoyable. It's a film. I don't, you know, people. It's weird. There's there's two things going on here. Either people have incredibly low expectations, like we do sometimes, mm. because you get cynical, or people seem to have really high expectations, as if this film is a film that's going to change things, whereas it used to be just a film, right? Yeah. And as just a film, I think this is good. But now I think films are looked at to kind of be tone setters or moral setters almost yeah i want to talk about that that's an article i'm thinking of my right phil so maybe i won't talk about it and it's gonna be rubbish anyway anyway let's move on <laughs> uh we finally caught up they carry on or he carries on with moonlight there is no doubt it compels attention but it left both of us feeling rather empty and wondering whether it was actually worthy of best picture was it a pendulum swing reaction against the hashtag oscars so white of the previous year what do you think, Phil? I know what you're saying. I think it is a well-made film and it doesn't... I don't think it doesn't deserve it, but I do think the context must have played a factor. What I am curious about is that how many best pictures... We kind of think of best pictures as this huge, momentous thing. I can't really remember the last five or six. The Revenant? That was the one before Moonlight, wasn't it? Yeah, but like it fades into background. Do you remember Argo? Do you remember Slumdog Millionaire? Uh, yes, I do remember some. And like there, we have this kind of high-reaching idea that best picture is the greatest picture of all time for that year, but they fade into the background very quickly, and it is kind of a product of its time. It is true. Test of time is a tough one for films, isn't it? Test mm. of time is a tough one. <laughs> it sounds like a song. <laughs> okay, he carries on. Personally, I found the imprecise camera work of Moonlight and casual approach to focus and depth of field rather annoying. So it's just shifting. Oh, in I and disagree out. there. I like that. Yeah, me too. From the trailers I saw, I'm afraid the natural. I agree with Phil. I, I think that is is fun to see, and like it's just kind of beautiful unquestionably he carries on there were some powerful scenes particularly the confrontation between the first main dealer and the mother what was it trying to say he asks uh i think that is interesting i think it's uh, it's not really saying anything it's instead exploring a one character over three different periods of his life and showing how previous experiences inform the later the latter sorry and looking at how people shift and change and really can you can you escape what you were originally and do relationships really degrade over time or do they persist wow i mean that was quite mystical to me i, for I mean it's difficult it. <laughs> yeah i know i hope i hope that makes some sense to people who haven't seen it and to those who have it makes perfect sense i'm hoping well we'll see yeah let us know the natural final thing they say by the way we happened to watch the american president with annette benning and michael douglas soon after watching miss sloan and it is a much more fun way of thinking about the ethics of lobbying. As it you is. Said. It genuinely is. Seriously. <laughs> don't, I get, don't I get what Miss Sloan was on about? What accent was that? <laughs> My voice went weird, so I carried on with it. <laughs> Very good, man. I like it. Okay, a couple of tweets from Alistair at Super Betty Bro. Saw the mummy earlier, guys, and have to say, while not fantastic, I enjoyed it. In fact, more than Wonder Woman. Poor reviews so far, though. Ooh, I'm surprised you enjoyed it more than Wonder Woman. I, yeah, but as I said, I think it's fine as a film. It's not the best film ever. It's not the worst film ever. Certainly not in terms of a film deserving of the crystal mauling but i think it's what it represents yeah you're possibly right loads and loads of tweets from esther this week phil are you ready some of them are directed your way yeah not, not your fault though at super baby bros trailer for children and men was all wrong badly put together and weird choice of music not representing the film well Sigur ross not a fan the planet earth song i think that's interesting esther because i thought it did represent the film well and this ties into probably her next comment which says at super baby bros when laurie said he didn't like children of men my husband banged his head against the wall and disappointed uh, disappointed we like it <laughs> well you're allowed to like it just because sorry doesn't like it doesn't mean you can't like it yeah well, no definitely and i you know as i said and i hope it came across in that uh, review i know that it's really 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 highly regarded and i definitely don't get everything right but it just didn't grab me and, and i think that was its biggest flaw is that if it misses you if you miss the mark with it by even a little bit there's nothing to latch on to esther you need to tell your husband to email in and tell laurie what he got wrong yes please do she carries on plus one to you phil for sense and sensibility love it yay and to answer your question question on this week's podcast i want to hear 
all the bonuses. All the bonuses. Like, that's quite a lot, isn't it? Oh, man. We'll work our way through it. We've got plenty of weeks. Okay. All right. Also, Phil, where are my film recommendations for Boston? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, gosh. Uh, I'm on the spot. Um, you said the social network. You've done Gone Baby Gone. Have you done Goodwill Hunting? Is that a Boston as well? Oh, is yeah. it just Matt? Oh, sure it is. Yeah, of course. Of course it is. But it is ben a Ben Affleck, Affleck being film, very so. like street chap. Yeah. yeah, but it's still an interesting one. Um, can I have a deep think get back to you i'll get laurie to tweet them out or something okay sure thing well that that's it this week listeners lighter this week compared to last week keep them coming in and sorry if you have emailed in time for thursday because we're actually recording this on a wednesday so that i can do my bbc stuff tomorrow i'm gonna do my bbc that's just how the cookie crumbles phil oh oh, yeah keep your thoughts coming to superbellybros at gmail.com at superbellybros on twitter ciao ciao Okay, that is it this week. We have talked about a load of films, an absolute bucket load, so do get in touch if you've seen any of those. If you've seen The Mummy, if you've seen Baywatch, if you've seen any of the ones we've been reviewing over these last couple of weeks, do get in touch. There's still plenty of time to hear your thoughts on that. Also, if you've seen Churchill now and you agree with Laurie or disagree or have some insight into that film, then please let Laurie know. I'm sure you'd appreciate it. Yeah, I would. I I don't really want uh, that one to go down as an anger uh, review from me I'd rather there be something I missed loads of films that we've done there's more films coming up there's uh, when is Planet of the Apes coming out the next oh, one I don't know Phil don't looking forward that to that question. one looking forward <laughs> to that one Laurie not so much uh, but yeah check it out next week do send in your emails check out Patreon check out YouTube you know as as you'd expect with the addresses and all that uh, but thanks so much for listening and thanks so much for all those who are supporting us encouraging us keeping us going on this filmic journey very serious outro Phil I don't know how to do <laughs> outros I'm, I'm trying to learn them you've got to be serious before you can be fun Fun. Or something like that. I don't know. Anyway, (laughs) ciao, ciao, tata for now. See you next week. Bye. Bye, listeners. Right, well, Phil, according to listeners, we need to do this. I've got two rejected bonuses. Not from... rejected, just okay. you chose me to, cho- well, you asked this, me to this choose. Was chair dancing in public places and there was going to a clothes shop and they don't even have the kind of thing you're looking for. Should I do them both? Yeah, just na- smash them out. Top one here. I was sitting in Itsu having a sushi film for mm. lunch and they've got quite low tables, Itsu, and they're also quite narrow. Have you been there before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, And it's because it's a sushi joint, you know, it's kind of close proximity to other customers in a Compact. classic Japanese style. Exactly. So I sat there eating away my sushi, enjoying it very much. And you kind of develop good skills for ignoring people who come close to you because that's the only way to do it. It's like sitting on the tube, right? You mm. become a master of not making eye contact with people. Very important. <laughs> very British. Exactly, yeah. And so there, I, I happened to notice there were two girls sat opposite me. The only reason I noticed they were there at all was that Uptown Funk was playing through Itsu speakers. And I was kind of like, I was doing little dances to myself at this place. And like so much so that I thought I caught movement out of my eye and I saw the girl opposite me who's doing exactly the same thing. It was really weird. It was like we're having our own little private disco moment in a totally Chair disco. Place. It was a bit off-putting and it made me want to stop dancing. Otherwise, yeah. it's like I'm dancing with this girl who is less than a metre away from me. Do you know what I mean? It's a bit weird. So yeah, there we go. That was one. Chair dancing. Yeah. And I wonder whether anyone else has done it. The other one was, yeah, I was quite depressed because I w- went shopping the other day. Well, I didn't go shopping. I popped into some shops while I was on my way to somewhere else. And I thought, you know what I need, Phil? It's completely ensemble at the moment. I need a good black cardigan. I don't have one of those. So I was looking for one. I had it in my mind, you know, kind of Exactly what you wanted, yeah. The yeah. sort of material. Slightly wool. Yeah, you know, the look. I knew quite what thin. I was going for, definitely. And then I was sort of flabbergasted to find, I went into a couple of places I thought were surefire hits for such a thing. And when I, I couldn't find it, and I just assumed I'm just an ignorant shopper. I don't know where to find these things. So I asked an assistant, I was like, um, excuse me, where are your cardigans? 
he looked at me a bit like, oh, hmm, right. And then said, yeah, I think we used to do cardigans. Um, <laughs> so like, not, your clothes are not even in season. It's, it's, yeah, it's not, even, it's not like I can't find a black cardigan or I can't find a cardigan in the style that I would like. <laughs> that like, item is oh, no yeah, longer done. we used to do cardigans. <laughs> what kind of answer is that? <laughs> like, it made me feel like the most out of touch funny daddy-ish man in the world it's like you got in and said do you where, where are your cravats yeah exactly if, yeah if that's exactly your, your galoshes maybe yeah i'm I looking just, for some uh, clogs pantaloons yeah i just <laughs> clogs clog would be a good one it's just quite unsettling when when you suddenly realize how out of step you are with the rest of the world and i think that's how fashion make their money right isn't it well, yeah, they move you along, so you can't buy the things you want. And they you tell you what to buy. Satisfied with your wardrobe either, because yeah. if it's moved on, no one's wearing that anymore, man. <laughs> Seriously, you get with the program. On another note, I finally, because of my current circumstances, I've now been enlightened into the world of uh, female clothes. Oh, going shopping with a with a with a lovely mother. lady, very yeah. nice. What is up with girls' clothes? They're the most impractical things you've ever seen. They're like wafer thin. The material made they use to make the stuff is like going to break in a second. Like the high sc- street shops that are all popular amongst all these sort of ladies and things, which I haven't really been privy to, they all have these... The whole style thing now is going for really thin material stuff. Not see-through or anything like that. Just very much not going to keep you warm. Yeah, okay. I mean, I have to admit, Phil, I've not noticed this. And maybe that just implies I don't... Go take my wife to nice places. <laughs> You're not shopping at the fashionable places. Yeah, just find yourself standing from the Heart Foundation shop. <laughs> Tell you what, charity shops, great place to get stuff. Maybe that's just an Oxford day. That's true. It's because there's loads of rich people here. They'll take their cars off. They don't sell oh, thank you, their Ralph yes. Lauren shirt jumpers, which they could definitely get 20 quid for. They think, oh, this is a rag. <laughs> give it away. Oh, give it away. Yeah, exactly. And then the charity shop will charge 15 quid for it. Yeah. Well, there we go. Clothes. Hope you're satisfied. Yeah, I think that's, 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 that's the only Easter egg hunt I'm interested in is the uh, one that ends in chocolate. <laughs> is that a joke? No, no, <laughs> I can't use that. And now, Phil, can I rejoin a film? I keep saying rejoin. I don't even know what it means. Someone described him as being an extreme serious. Someone described his films as being extreme serious. Someone described. <laughs> Hold on, <laughs> this could end up at the end. I hope it does. <laughs> Uh, I am going to do. I can't even remember. Yeah, you like didn't read my gifted. Oh yeah. Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs>